So I'd like to start with a question for you. Are you trying hard enough? (laughs) Now, come on, be honest. Trick question. It's a trick question. Wise effort. Wise effort. What is it? How do we know it? What are the uh, faux versions of wise effort? (laughs) The very seductive and kind of familiar ways of trying that we often get lured into when we're trying to do this kind of practice. So let's locate this first within the Buddha's Eightfold Path. So this is wise effort, is the sixth step. It's part of the concentration set. So it's followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And it makes total sense it would be grouped in that kind of way because it's very clear that effort needs to be made, a particular kind of effort that involves the the rousing of energy. I talked a little bit about this quality of virya in the faith talk that I gave last week. So effort is required. And the Buddha talks about this over and over and over again. And certainly, the founder of this system, the Buddha, could be considered to be kind of... um, the pinnacle of striving, right? Big striver. Undertook a very important and heroic task, and then he went about it in a way that was completely committed. And if you remember anything about his biography, you remember the piece where he was practicing austerities right up to the point of death, thinking that if he just made a little bit more effort in the direction of austerities, then maybe he would break through, that that would be what it, what it took. Until he realized through seeing the effect of that kind of approach that that really couldn't be all there was to it. Because he was right at the edge of death and he knew further effort in this particular way was a little counterproductive. He would be escaping, but not quite in the way he was looking to escape. But this factor of effort is a very important one, a necessary one, essential, without which nothing is probably going to happen. But it's important to know that effort can come in two forms. Skillful and unskillful, or wise or unwise. So, for instance, this quality of virya can be seen in people who, say, in the business world, have tons of energy for what they're doing, complete commitment to it, uh, 
will you know, push their body and mind right to the limit in pursuit of doing things, say, that could do permanent damage to the planet in the interest of securing profit. That's one version. Unwise, we would probably agree. And then there's the Dalai Lama, who, of course, has worked for decades persistently and heroically around issues related to Tibet and the salvaging of the the cultural heritage of Tibet and the well-being of people who live there. Wise effort. But overall, there is effort called for and used within the context of the Eightfold Path, this effort, this energy, this virya, is in the direction of summoning wholesome qualities of mind that are conducive to liberation and applying those qualities of mind in a way that supports the arising of wisdom, of clear insight that allows the mind to come to understanding, which is what ultimately frees it from the suffering of its own misunderstandings. And in order for this kind of wise effort to really take hold, it needs to be understood within the context of the Eightfold Path, in particular in the context of wise view, which has to do with the Four Noble Truths, and an understanding of the Eightfold Path itself, but also with connection to wise intention. The effort has to incorporate what we understand by wise intention for the effort itself to be wise and skillful. So that's all a way of saying effort isn't a standalone kind of thing. You have to consider the big picture in understanding what's actually being said when you're exhorted to effort. And, you know, traditional ways of talking about effort talk about the four great endeavors which have to do with uh, letting go of unwholesome qualities of mind, i.e. variations on greed, hatred, and delusion, Uh, you know, preventing their arising if they're unwholesome, and summoning wholesome qualities of mind, uh, liberating qualities of mind, and perfecting and maintaining them. That's how it's often talked about. And how you do that, the way you do that, is largely about context and method. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Buddhist path is there's tons of method. You may have noticed this. I mean, if you consider uh, the instructions that are available to you, even the framework of the Eightfold Path, you know, this very clear uh, explanation of context, and, you know, this is related to this, and this is how it all fits together and works together, and then meditation, you know, very particular instructions about how to regard different hindrances and, and all of the rest of that. Tons of method. And it's very distinguishing. And this is all about 
Buddhism being a practical system that guides the mind into connection with experience in a way that allows it to see for itself its fundamental misconceptions so that it can let go of them. And and in that, finding the end of suffering. So the system doesn't create enlightenment, which is an intrinsic potential, but it's really, in a certain kind of way, directed towards the obscurations, right? Directed towards dealing with the cloud cover that keeps us from understanding and keeps that radiant, uh, pure mind from manifesting itself. So part of practice then is the willingness to actually touch those obscurations of mind. To acknowledge them, to see them, to see them for what they are, see them for what they're not, in order to become disentangled from them, disenchanted with them. And the other part of it is learning how to recognize skillful states, figuring out how to encourage them and invite them, and how to plant the seeds for future arising of those kinds of states in the future. So in order to do this, effort is required, and the Buddha talks about this over and over and over again. And... uh, you know, one of the one of the sayings is, you know, no being can purify the mind of another. So there's an understanding this is an inside job that we have to do for ourselves with the help of the teachings and um, what we can summon from within. So we need to apply ourselves, we need to engage, we need to make choices, set pri- priorities and do all of that kind of thing. And it needs to be a sustained kind of effort. But it does need to be wise effort. There's there's a classic story that's told about wise effort that kind of illustrates it uh, through example. And in this story, the Buddha was still living and he had a new bhikkhu, a new monk. And apparently this particular monk was a rather gently raised individual. And, um, but he wanted to seek enlightenment, and he was committed, and he was practicing. And in particular, he was doing walking practice, so he was walking in bare feet on a somewhat rocky path, And as he was walking, hour by hour, his rather soft feet started to feel kind of ragged, and, you know, they kind of split open, and they were bleeding, and he had resolve, and, you know, he kept going, and he was going to, you know, enlightenment or bust. Does this feel familiar? Um, he was gonna. He was gonna do it, and 
his, the sister of this bhikkhu seemed like she was kind of hanging around and, you know, keeping an eye on the, the goings-on. I don't know, maybe this sounds like a little older sister activity or something. But anyway, she, was, she became aware of this situation, and she went to the Buddha. And she said, uh, Lord, you know, gave him the, the summary of the situation, you know, can you go talk to my brother and give him some tips? So the Buddha must have had a quiet day then because he went to the bhikkhu and he looked at what was going on and he saw what, what the problem was. And he realized that this particular individual in his previous life before becoming a renunciate was a musician. And so he thought okay, I'll talk to him in terms of image and metaphor. And he said, uh, you know, do you know how to play? I don't know what it was, the lute or something like that. And, and the monk says, yes. And he says, well, when you're, you're playing the lute, when you're doing this, do you, uh, you know, when you tune it uh, uh, too high, when you turn it too tight, how does it sound? You know, and the guy says, well, it's, you know, it's too high, it's too, it's out of pitch. And the Buddha says, well, when you, when you, you know, really open, open the keys, you know, and it's kind of uh, loose, how does it sound? And he says, oh, you know, that's not right either, that's, that's flat. And he says, just so. There's something there in the middle, right? There's something in the middle where it's in tune, where it's right. And this is a very important teaching story, I think, because he, he's pointing to an important piece of this, which is we know wise effort through close connection with how things are actually going. <laughs> how, do you, how do you know whether a guitar string is in tune. It's not just a mechanical thing where you're flipping it back and forth and trying to set it to the right notch, right? You're, it's, you're listening. You're turning. You're plucking. You're strumming. You're listening. You know, even if you're using one of those electronic tuners, you're watching a meter or something and seeing where, you know, the needle the needle is, whether it's in the center. So there's a feedback mechanism that's part of this understanding of whether the effort being made is skillful or not. Sensitivity to what's actually happening, so receptivity right there in the effort making. Now for us, you know, as people who have mostly been raised in Western cultures. I know that's not true of everyone here. Um, But here we are in the West, in any case, no matter uh, what your nativity was, here here you are in Western uh, striving land. So there's always a little hesitation when you 
to, when you talk about effort on retreats with Westerners, because the way we tend to hear this conversation is very much bound up with some of the cultural views, understandings, norms that are part of our larger environment. So when I came in and I first said to you, I'm going to talk about effort and what I want to know is, are you trying hard enough? What, what was the very first reaction that you had to that? Was it, it might have been kicked back like, I'm trying plenty hard enough, honey. <laughs> Don't be telling me to try harder. Right? Or it could be, or was it like a shadow thing of, yeah, that's true. I did take that nap this afternoon, you know. Even though I had a migraine, you know, I probably could have done lying meditation when I was there on the bed. You know, just been with the pain a little little bit and known it, you know. But we tend to hear things in a certain kind of way, shaped by our inherited values and our own experiences. You know, when we first come to the Dharma, of course, we don't come unshaped by what has gone before. We've lived, however many years we've lived, in a certain immersion and a way of looking at things and a way of evaluating. So we have an orientation that forms a view with which we approach Dharma practice. And of course, we have individual views, I'm not saying that, but there, there are generic views that we tend to hold. And I think some of these include, for instance, the belief we're in control of or should be in control of what we experience. Right? We should be able to control what's coming out of the nozzle. Um, We tend to have a consumer orientation towards experience. You know, is it measuring up to standards? Um, There's often a desire to protect and enhance the egoic self-sense by um, getting what fulfills our ideal self-view. And then, of course the assumption that pleasant is the most reliable and important measure of the value of experience and the standard of success. Don't we on some very organic level kind of feel or believe that it, if it, it should be feeling good if it's going right? <laughs> or if it's going right, it should be feeling good? Or there's a little bit of something there. So I think a lot of these these assumptions are part of cultural values and it's the way we go about thinking and proceeding. So they're often in play when we approach the Dharma and when we make effort in practice. So we have a problem here if what I just said is true, which is if you... Remember back to the earlier part of the talk where I talked about wise intention, 
and how that was really, you had to really consider how that informs effort. What do we know about wise intention? Let's see, elements of wise intention. Uh, renunciation, uh, metta, and compassion. So you could say, in other words, renunciation is letting go of the consumeristic desire to get something. Metta is letting go of placing the egoic self-sense at the center of the universe. And compassion is being willing to be present with the unpleasant nature of suffering out of a kind desire to relieve it. Uh Uh-oh. So if these aren't opposite to the cultural conditioning I just described, you would have to agree that they're at least at right angles to it. So if we if we know that and realize that and that's really sunk in, that can be very helpful. That we're doing a different kind of efforting. It's oriented in a completely different way. It's informed by other things. But very often we can't hold that. We forget that peace or that's not conscious to us. So if we're unconscious of this and we tend to practice with the cultural values lens on, then we tend to proceed in the following way, which is there's a desire to gain control of the situation through exerting effort with the understanding that uh, mastery can be attained through an act of will. So we're, we're trying to do it right, right? We're trying to do it right. Like if we we're doing it right, we would have, be having a particular experience. So an example of this might be, for instance, if you've decided you want to focus on the breath and you're paying, it, paying attention to the breath as best you can or you're trying to pay attention to the breath and the mind keeps slipping off the breath, and you decide, okay, sucker. <laughs> this is not what we're doing. And you kind of grab the mind by the back of the neck and kind of go, I'm going to watch the breath. <laughs> and like you approach it with that kind of way, I'm watching the breath, and it's going to stay there. You do everything except nail the mind to the spot under your nose, you know? (laughs) Doubling down, okay? Not taking the feedback from what's actually happening. Just kind of like repeating the, the, you know, repeating the same approach, whether or not, not taking the feedback of how it's actually going. You know, another manifestation of some of these, these cultural approaches is a consumeristic orientation towards the whole thing where where it's we're looking for particular goodies 
We might not even be able to say what they are. But you know we want them. You know, state chasing, right? Hmm, I think I think that's... That was a little calm I had at that last sitting, you know. Now, how did I walk in the hall that time? I think I walked by the window, and when I walked by the window, I think I looked out, and I saw there was some light out there, and I think that improved my mood. And then when I went to my cushion, I felt calm. So, okay, you know what I'm saying. Okay. Another thing we can do is we can get competitive and zealous, right? Now, competition, I won't ask, ask people to raise their, their hands if they've experienced comparing mind and relationship to the imaginary, uh, real or imaginary experiences of other people they've seen on retreat. <laughs> Yeah, and this can really get us into a lot of a lot of interesting kind of mind spaces, right? Like so. Say, for instance, you're, you're having uh, problems with sleepiness, and you're, you know, there's been a suggestion made. Well, you know, maybe you need to just go for some regular walks at a good speed, you know, and build up some energy and get some energy going, or. Maybe you need to go, go take a nap. Maybe what your body needs is actually to restore itself. These suggestions are coming from the teacher, you know, or maybe the inner Dharma coach. But then, as you're considering doing that, you cast your eyes about and you see someone doing five-part walking, lifting, moving, placing, stepping, shifting, and you go, that's the technique. That's what is really going to get me there. That's what the big boys and girls do. And I don't see how going for a regular speed walk is really doing it, right? I'm going to do it the way the big kids do it. And so disregarding the evidence of your actual experience, you attempt to replicate the way you see somebody else practicing. So another thing that that we can do is, uh, you know, not see the desire to enhance or protect the egoic self-sense when we're practicing dharma. Or we may practice with the desire to get rid of the self-sense altogether. Um, So then it becomes very triangularized, right? It's like the self-sense arises. It's either feeling good about how it's going or it's feeling bad about how it's going. But somehow... It's in the center, and that's the lens through which we're viewing how it's going. You know, hey, I'm feeling pretty good about myself today. Practice going, going pretty good, you know. Yesterday I had a lot of hindrances, you know. I was kind of restless, and, you know, today I'm not really restless. I'm, I'm pretty calm. You know, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, I'm getting, I'm getting good. 
and you have an afternoon sitting, you're, you're sitting, and you know, you're, the Dharma, Dharma pride is there, in the, and then you sit down, and you go, oh God, I'm so sleepy, I can't, I can't stay awake. I can't stay awake. Oh, man, I don't have this at all. I thought I had it this morning. I had it this morning and I lost it. Right? Or, you know, we we can have the other one, the assumption that pleasant is a very good indicator of how it's all going, right? Like, oh, you know, my body's open, my body's clear. Or the opposite, or, oh, my body, you know, I just feel these feelings, these unpleasant feelings, these, you know, these unpleasant things in the core of the body, and, you know, I thought I got rid of this this before, or, you know, I felt better before I came on retreat than I feel now. It's like, oh, my God, I'm in retrogressive motion. It's like, I was better before I came here than I am now, and I've been here six weeks. Oh, my God, what am I going to be like by the end of it? You know, by eight weeks, it's like, I'm destroying my mind and body. It's like, oh, my goodness. So, you know, the, these these ways of evaluating... And running, trying to run things, they're, they're very familiar and they're very seductive. And if we don't see them, there can be a lot of frustration and an actual lack of progress in the practice if they're not conscious. If they're the standards by which we judge whether or not it's working, or of whether or not we're making enough effort, we can really be led astray, because then we start to measure things by whether or not are we getting what we want out of it? Well, we always have wants, right? Are we getting what we want out of it? Does what is happening meet our expectations? Does it conform to a view or a map or a previous experience? Are we feeling in control of what's happening? Are we on top of it? Is what is happening meeting our standards? How do we feel we stack up against the other yogis, especially the really slow ones? Are we having a good time? Does it feel pleasant? So this is the internal report card, right? Often we make effort along the lines of these questions. Trying to improve the grade by uh, using these measurements and trying to get experience to conform for us. We make more and more effort and become more and more miserable in the process. So to get back to the original question, you know, do you need to try harder? Well, often, wise effort isn't about trying harder at all. Now, if you really consider it, trying harder is something we often do. Is it not? So if we're going to take a look at how you're already trying, what you're already trying to do, all of us, What are we trying, trying to do? We're trying to edit the present moment, trying to make it 
what's happening now and in the future conform to our preferences. We do do this, don't we? We follow after what's pleasant, push away what's unpleasant, and zone out on what's neutral. Which is a way of saying our habitual consciousness, kind of the untrained part of our mind, is often working, and it's working really, really, really hard. It's struggling with reality as it actually presents itself. So you could say we're making a constant effort to um, edit, shape, revise, remake, reform, secure, hold on to, pursue, capture, improve, own, control, ignore, shut out, redirect, and otherwise govern things. So... You know, this is a very fatiguing endeavor, but you certainly can't call it a lack of effort. (laughs) You know, that list reminded me a little bit of George Carlin. It just suddenly (laughs) seemed like one of his strings. But Of course, working hard in that kind of way wouldn't be a problem if it actually led to happiness. You know, if it actually worked. But, you know, that's kind of the flaw in the fundamental strategy. And it, it doesn't work because, of course, in the immediate sense, our preferences aren't what determines what happens. Things manifest as they do because of causes and conditions, not because of our will. So attempting to control reality in that sense is stressful and futile as well. And when I'm talking about controlling reality, I'm talking about controlling reality right there at the point of direct perception. Right? So I'm not talking about whether or not we can have long, longer-term influence on the, the direction of our life or our evolution or have any influence in the world or any of that. I'm clear that, yes, we can. But right there, you know, Atisha uses the word the bubbling well, which he finds in the foot somewhere, but, but right there at the bubbling well where things arise into existence, right there, we don't control that. Have you noticed that? So that leads us to the role of non-clinging, letting go, and surrender in our understanding and in our practice of wise effort. So surrender seems to be the way to go. Now I have to confess, and uh, Fred knows why I feel this way, but I have to confess that when I, I first heard this, you know, you need to surrender that did not sit very well with me. Okay. So in my family, we, we don't do surrender. Right? We don't do that. Okay. So, you know, it was like I had these images of like, you know, running up the white flag and, you know, giving up the fort to the enemy. <laughs> you know, uh, come, and, come, and, come, and, come in and take it all. You know, I surrender. But that's telling you more about my conditioning than you really need to know. But... Obviously, that's not really what's being said here. Okay. 
It's not about getting, uh, giving up or getting rolled over or being defeated or becoming some sort of, you know, passive individual that life just rolls over and that doesn't have any capacity for initiative or courage. So that's not what it means, just in case any of you have problems like I did. So that's not what it means. So, well, what does it mean? This language of non-resistance. So I did eventually figure out that letting go referred to the release of futile resistance to things as they actually existed and were manifesting. It meant opening up to what was happening now and allowing it to move as it was going to anyway. Which was very big of me, don't you think? (laughs) Acting in a way that was sensitively connected to this creative vitality and in wise relationship to it. So letting go means operating from a base of clear seeing and not from specific preferences which are at variance with what's actually happening. doesn't mean preferences won't be there. It's when you get into trying to implement them that it becomes a bit of a problem. So this surrender, this letting go, means seeing the Dharma, the truth of the present moment, and taking that as the starting point, the foundation for action, rather than acting from conditioned desires which you're fighting with the present manifestation of truth. It means moving away from a pattern of resistance to reality to a balanced opening to it, to sensing the grain of things, and then going from there. In other words, listening to the sounding of the string. It will tell you whether it's too tight or too loose. So if we're going to say then, well, what exactly do we let go of in this letting go? Well, that would be surrender of suffering, mostly. Which is the painful pattern of attempting to control, fabricate, avoid, and pursue, which is operant on both subtle and obvious levels of the mind. And, you know, you've been sitting here for a while. I'm sure you've noticed, you know, some of these these tendencies of, you know, resistance and reaction and revision and things are very deeply rooted. We start letting go of suffering through coming to understand delusion, which is, which causes cravings for things to be a certain way which they cannot be in the moment. And of course, there's a very classic story of Jack's teacher, Ajahn Chah, saying, you know, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go completely, dot, dot, dot. But it's a really big jump to let go completely. There's some not only cultural basis for the way that we clutch, 
and try to manipulate things right there at the point of a, a, a rising experience. It's deeply ingrained. So we, we can't by an act of will say, well, that's it. No more clinging for me, baby. Done with it. Overdone. No more clutching. No more clinging. No more revising. No more editing. No more struggle. No more resistance. No more fabrication. I see what it is. I see what the problem is. I'm not going to do it anymore. The mind moment where you see it, clear seeing. The mind moments that arise subsequent to that, that clear seeing may or may not be there. That cloud cover that I was talking about earlier, those obfuscations of mind, kind of comes in, doesn't it? Yesterday it was completely clear and sunny, right? Today it kind of came in. Now the sky is covered, no stars tonight. These condition patterns of gripping and holding are strong. So if we can't let go completely, even though Ajahn Chah is completely correct, but we can't but we want to, at least sometimes. So then the question is, well, how do you bridge that? How do you get from, you know, some understanding that that's the direction of wise effort, that that's kind of the way it has to go, is surrender to reality. (laughs) Surrender to reality, but the mind just can't quite let go of the gripping. So some of the things that we might be able to let go of and ways we could begin to practice would be to look at how we practice when, for instance, there's an arising wanting of something to be different, whether that's aversion or craving. So what could we do then? Well, what would some of the steps be? Well, the first one would be being willing to come into the here and now, into the present, regardless of what's happening. Be in the present regardless of what's happening. All of this in a skillful way, right? This is assuming that this is this can be done in a way that's balanced, right? It's not a kamikaze activity being called for here, right? For some time, sometimes for the mind, that's not the right thing, but when it can, being willing to come into here and now. Accepting what is arising in experience. Yep, that's resentment. opening to things as they are without trying to edit them. You know, and sometimes you feel that burn. You can actually feel the movement of the mind and body to kind of like want to do something to it. You know, can you see that movement of mind of wanting to get in there and change what's being received? We could practice letting go of expectations of thinking or wanting something that's preferred or predictable. And this would involve 
becoming aware of desires and wants that are at variance with what's actually present. And opening to these very desires and wants as objects of meditation. You know, sometimes we don't really see this piece, right? You know, a desire comes up for, you know, the apple or the chocolate's probably a better object. For the chocolate, you know, the mind is like, oh, the chocolate, the chocolate, the chocolate, you know. Can it turn around right in the seat and say, let go of the fixation with the object and actually see the wanting See the desire there. We can also practice in an open-ended and allowing way and noticing when there's an anticipation of familiarity. Have you noticed this in your practice? How sometimes it can be so hard to recognize something that you haven't experienced before? It can kind of like be there for quite a while before the mind goes, oh, I wonder if this is tranquility. It feels like people come into interviews and they'll go, nothing's happening. (laughs) Nothing's happening. (laughs) What do you think? Maybe that's calm? (laughs) Um, You could notice when there's a desire or a tendency to control, edit, or direct happening. Control, edit, direct. Wanting to. Control, edit, direct. And can you take that as the object of meditation? That very desire to control, edit, and direct. I want it to be like this. I don't want it to be like that. I'd like a little more energy, but I don't like that much excitement in the body. You know? I kind of like that equanimity, but on the other hand, I kind of like that charge I get when I see something really pleasant. And now when I see that thing that's pleasant... I don't really get that excited about it anymore, and I wonder if I could get that back. You know, like seeing this, right? Seeing these these desires to modify what we're actually experiencing. That desire to modify, that's a meditation object. And then, of course, we can practice with letting go of a fixed self-view. Oh, this is, this is an interesting, juicy one. We... We're discussing earlier this self-sense, egoic self-sense that arises in meditation and how that can really get in the middle sometimes and you know, seemingly be evaluating things or uh, directing things, moving around right there in the middle of it all while you're trying to meditate but then sometimes how it's all like all about this I thing all of a sudden that's usually when it's not going very well. So, this letting go of a fixed self-view, well, how do you do that? You may have the idea that this is a, you know, grit your teeth and exile it activity, but I think that tendency would fall into the control, edit, and direct section of the above. Because you can't do that, right? I'm not going to have an eye. <laughs> but what can you do with it? So you can notice when things are experienced in relationship to me, 
especially when there's a desire to change them to be as wanted. Are you experiencing things in relationship to me? That's not a value judgment question, by the way. That's just like a question of fact, as they say. You can notice when there's a feeling of a threatened self there, which needs to be protected and or which needs to control moment to moment. That's another version. You can see when that happens. And again, it's not to, um, you know, get rid of any of these arisings. These These arisings are just as good as any other. But you can make these and other manifestations of a self-sense the object of meditation when they arise. Hmm, the arising of the self-sense. Oh, it's here. Okay, this is me. Oh, there's the me, the arising of the me. The arising of the me. Usually there's a little bit of Kalesa catchment around that point. See if that's not the case. It's, in, it's interesting. Very often the bigger the, me, the I or the self-sense is, the, the, the tighter, the pack, more tightly packed the hindrances are around it. Seems to be you know, a catchment area for those, but just to see it. But you can watch that self-sense, the arising of the self-sense, the arising of the me as a meditation object. And of course, one of the paradoxes of the whole thing is not fighting with desire. You don't need to fight with it. And in fact, it's kind of important to let go of any unskillful desires to be free from desire. So it's kind of an interesting thing that this very attempt to get free from craving can be a stumbling block to liberation when we're unwilling or unable to acknowledge in in a kind of neutral and matter-of-fact way that craving is in fact present. It's okay that it's there. You know, trying to get rid of craving by an act of will is not possible. And the Buddha found this out during his period of, you know, extreme asceticism. You know, he tortured his body to the point of death, and he started to realize, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. To react to the pain of craving with craving for its departure is a little bit like... um, you know, being an alcoholic who, you know, reacts to... uh, a hangover by (laughs) trying to have a big old drink. It's a little bit like that. If you remember, liberation is found through insight and understanding of causation. How things are put together, how things work. So it's more a process of learning how to see, relax, and open to a fuller and fuller palette of what we experience, bringing that light of kind awareness, mindfulness, that's 
infused with uh, compassion and metta to the full range of what we can experience. And when this happens at consistently deeper levels of the body-mind, the delusion cluster, if you want to call it that, relaxes and releases itself. The I doesn't do it. The system releases itself when it's allowed to. And the I that wants, wanted to get rid of the I is not what's directing this. Rather, that capital I is part of what's seen and known along with everything else. It's seen and let go of as not self. It's not clung to as identity. So then the, the question comes, when that happens, when the delusion cluster releases itself, What's left? What's there then? So that's your investigation. That's your living experiment, your laboratory. Can the mind relate to it all in the same way? All of the arisings allow them to be, allow them to be as they are, connect with them, see with them, let them have their life, don't get sucked into fighting with them, let them be. And that's really what wise effort seems to come down to in a certain kind of way. So you don't really need to try harder You can perhaps loosen up trying hard in the way that you're used to trying and see if the mind can orient a little bit more towards this receptive, allowing, knowing of what's actually present. So let's let let that settle for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.